2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. You're listening to Into It from Vulture. I'm Sam Sanders. And this week, I am joined by comedian and writer Guy Branham. Oh, um, please don't stop the music. He is a co-star and co-producer of the new movie Bros, a film I'm sure you've heard of. It is set to be the biggest studio release of a gay rom-com ever. We're going to talk about that film later and Guy's role in it. But first, of course, going to play a round of Into It not into it. It's really simple. I share a recent story from the news, from the zeitgeist, and you just tell me if you're into it or not and tell me why. Okay. Here we go. Are we into or not into Rihanna performing at next year's Super Bowl halftime show? I'm 100% into it. Um, like, Rihanna is now very good at presiding over major events. Let us never forget she was there in Barbados when they went from being part of the, like, having the queen as their head of state to being a republic. Yeah. Like, she is now essentially a diplomat for Barbados. And also, may I say, the great thing about a halftime performance is you get a retrospective of the entire career. And that means I'm going to get Ponda Replay. <laughs> Not Ponda Replay. That was before she could really sing. Uh, Ponda Replay is amazing. <laughs> Do you remember Rage on Santa Monica? I was walking out of Rage and a song started playing and I stopped and I turned around <laughs> and I said, her. I love it. I will say at my Rihanna moment when I first realized that she was going to be around for a long time, I was driving back to college from church on a Sunday in San Antonio and I was on the road and I remember hearing Umbrella on the radio for the first time. And the song was so good. Yeah. It almost brought me to tears. Yeah. I was like, how does anyone make a song this catchy and good? So I love her. I love that. But here's the thing. I'm not 100% into her Super Bowl halftime show because she has not addressed yet 
what happened with her longstanding beef with the NFL. She was one of the first celebrities to speak out loudly against the NFL after they were mean to Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. Mm -hmm. She's talked about how several times she's turned the NFL down when they've asked her to do the halftime show before. And so all that backstory is there. Colin Kaepernick is still not in the NFL. I'm like, Rihanna, they haven't fixed themselves. You're still too good for them, the NFL. I mean, that's fair, like... The thing I really respect about Rihanna is she's not a person to hold her tongue. And I think even when there are issues, she's going to speak up, even if it impacts her um, financially. It is important to, like, take political stands, but also we cannot behave as though these big forums don't mean anything and access to these big forums don't mean anything. And if Rihanna doing the halftime show means that she introduces her new single, on the biggest stage in the yes. world, I suppose I can forgive everything else. <laughs> <laughs> it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Okay. Yeah. So I am less into it than you are, but Fair. I am still into it. All right. Second question. Are you into or not into a sister act sequel? Um, I am 100% into this. No, look, there's okay. danger in any situation where we are going back to something we love and unearthing it. Um Also, here's something about Sister Act that we don't talk about when it comes to Sister Act. It's that it was directed by Emil Ardolino, the guy who also directed Dirty Dancing. Two iconic films that are still as good today as they were when they came out. Who is this director? And the answer is he was a gay guy who was HIV positive and ended up dying of, of AIDS not long afterwards. And when you look at these stories and understand that they they are so suffused with a queer perspective, it is not surprising. And he had such a great touch with comedy and the fact that he is no longer with us and wouldn't be able to watch over this story makes me sad. But like so many of the great big players we have, just knowing that Kathy and Jimmy and Whoopi Goldberg got to hang out for a period of time. That would make me happy. We still have Maggie Smith. We should be doing this. Lauren Hill is around. I mean, I I would love to watch this. Okay. Are you more or less into the idea of a Sister Act sequel when you find out that Whoopi Goldberg has said that she wants to make Sister Act 3 with Jennifer Lewis? Oh, please. I am more into it. <laughs> Same. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy Jennifer Lewis is an icon. My friend Matt Rogers is on a show with her on uh, Showtime. And uh, every time he brings back a story about Jennifer Lewis, it's amazing. And, you know, like that, what, 40 years on down the line, Cheryl Lee Ralph is getting an Emmy Award and we have more Jennifer Lewis than ever. It's true justice for the dream girls. Yes. I would be so excited for this. Uh, where I, I want to know where Sister Mary Clarence is today. <laughs> I want the Sister Act 3 film to... So the first one was just at the nunnery, at the church. The second one was at a Catholic school yeah. with the kids. I want the third one to be like with like kindergartners. Um, I mean, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Also, I mean, Jennifer Lewis, like talking the way Jennifer Lewis does in front of <laughs> six-year-olds would thrill me. Yes. Call me a bitch. I'm Jennifer motherfucking Lewis. I've done 63 motherfucking films, 259 television shows. And four Broadway Last shows. question for you. Are you into the CIA podcast? What? You didn't hear about this? No. Guy, there's a CIA 
podcast. The Culinary Institute of America or the Central Intelligence Agency? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> the Central Intelligence Agency has a podcast because podcasting is dead. They announced it on Twitter a few days ago. It exists. I am into almost all pop culture stories. I could not imagine you were going to give me a pop culture story that I wouldn't be into, but I'm very not into this. The thing is, is like... We did it. I, I mean... You've never had any, like, there's been no higher level of propaganda than um, the CIA having their own podcast. There's no possible way that they're going to be talking about, like, when they overthrew the government of Iran in the 50s. Um, You know, (laughs) there's no way we're going to be getting honest stories here. I'm trying to think about what CIA podcast conversation topics might be. Like episode one, how we diversified the ranks of our mercenaries. (laughs) I don't know. What do you you talk about? What's your assassination of the week? There's going to be an assassination (laughs) of the week where everybody (laughs) says what their favorite assassination from history was. Basically. Also, I'm like imagining now, like... Someone tries to make that CIA podcast where they get into it, uh, but the CIA comes back and, like, redacts the audio. Like, (laughs) how many words would you hear in the half-hour podcast episode? (laughs) Just the ads. Just the MailChimp ad is all you would hear. That's the question. Like, are Sherry's Berries, are Mattresses.com going to be sponsoring uh, um, this podcast about uh, international espionage? Can we get uh, can we get our glass on this jet, Adam Rod? Somebody do this. <laughs> you heard it here first. It's gonna happen, guy. I'm gonna hit you up. We're gonna make our own podcast company and just go out yes, and do this show. Uh, yes, you and me. I can promote Bros Chew on the CIA podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. 
It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. There's a new rom-com out this week, and in many ways, it's pretty traditional. Two love interests meet. They are opposites, and yet they attract. Hilarity and butterflies, and maybe even love, ensues. You may be more emotionally unavailable than I am. Well, maybe we can be emotionally unavailable together. But this rom-com is different for two big reasons. One, it is very gay. The two leads are two men. They have very gay sex in this film, like foursomes and wrestle play. Yeah, you like that? Hey. Yeah, I can be tough. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, can, I can be tough like your you boys. Like I can be aggressive. Oh, there you are. There you are. And two, this rom-com is getting a big theatrical release from Universal. It's going to movie theaters first, before streaming, and it's getting a big marketing budget. That happens less and less these days, and a lot of people say that has never happened on a large scale for a gay rom-com. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm talking about Bros, that new Billy Eichner film. I'm pretty sure you've heard about it by now. Besides having Billy Eichner as its star and co-writer, Judd Apatow produced it, and his longtime collaborator, Nick Stoller, directed. And those two have a track record of making hits. You're a virgin! I am, shut up. I'm pregnant. With a baby? Do you want to put some clothes on? Would you like to pick out the outfit that you break up with me in? But as much excitement as there is for all that, there's also a lot of pressure on this film to prove that gay movies can make money in theaters and to represent the queer community, whatever that actually means. I want to talk about bros, but I also want to talk about that pressure. And I'm very happy that I get to have this chat with one of the stars and co-producers of the film himself. You heard from him earlier. Comedian Guy Branham. They cast me, an extremely fat gay guy, to play somebody who has a social life and is out all the time and knows everybody and has sex and has a good time. And I was really surprised by that. I didn't, you know, mm. I, I I love and respect Billy, but I was still surprised <laughs> that he thought of me for this role. You know, it's, so they picked you for this. Yeah, yes, the role is based on his his best friend Keith, who is somebody who is happy not being in a relationship, and mm. Billy sort of wanted that energy there because. You know, the romantic comedy as it exists is heteronormative. It yeah. ends in an idea of two people being together, the prospect of a baby, the prospect of happily ever after. And one of the things that this movie tries to deal with is the fact that happily ever after can look different for queer people. Your character in this movie is pushing against some of the tropes that traditional straight rom-coms fall into, but it's also pushing against some of the tropes that gay cinema can fall into. I think a lot of times when there is a gay man on screen who is not stereotypically skinny and white guy hot, he is depressed. 
he is traumatized and he is unfulfilled. But you play this character who is not depressed because of his body or anything else. You are happy, you're funny, you're fucking, and you have a life outside of your friendship with the main characters. Yeah. And so when you were channeling that role, how much of it was you pushing against straight tropes like rom-coms? And how much of it was you also pushing against some of the way queer cinema and TV depicts people like you usually? Just getting to be there was pushing against the tropes of gay cinema. So frequently, Mm. we have this very restrictive idea of who gay people are, even though that's not the life that we lead. It's not the, the world that we are in. There is sort of this idea of all gay men must be white, rich, and very conventional. Yes, and very conventionally attractive, or else they must be terribly sad. There is this sort of like velvet rage, yeah. best little boy in the world idea that we have to be constantly visually, visibly proving that we are okay so that we do not fall into straight people's tropes of terrible, sad gay guy that we see in a thousand movies being played by, a, you know, a thousand straight guys. And when a character who looks like me shows up in any movie, they are usually there to be the butt of a joke. And to live out trauma. And to like to live out trauma and also to displace trauma. It is mm. to take all of the things that people fear about themselves and put it on an other so that they can imagine themselves to be the handsome people at the heart of the story. And, you know, the, the character as written was giving me space to do something that was at odds with that. And it also, you know, allowed the character to just have fun with this role that in straight rom-coms is so much fun. And I, I think there's something wonderful in this movie that I am one of the few people who's getting to play a role that is sometimes played by a queer person in a straight rom-com. Like I have been yeah. the sassy gay friend in a romantic <laughs> comedy before, you know, from Rosie O'Donnell to Eve Arden, like uh, the sassy wiseacre <laughs> friend in a romantic comedy is a well-respected role that queer people love. And, you know, so much of the time it is sort of like a sad sack fat friend, but this movie didn't feel the need to place any onus of sad sackness upon me. And I was really pleased with that. Yeah. Well, I also love that this movie accepted that like all kinds of gay men, in fact, most gay men have a good amount of sex. Right. You know, all sizes and shapes of gay men have sex, you know? True. And, like, it's been so weird because gay men know this. We yes. all know it. And yet so much of queer TV and cinema, queer TV and cinema denies this fact. And I was just relieved to see bros admit that even outside of the CrossFit gays, we still fuck. One of the dangers that comes along with the passing privilege of being a cis gay guy is this obligation to pass is this obligation to disappear into like straight people not really thinking that much about you and this fear mm-hmm. that if we are honest about what our lives are like straight people will be horrified and when you look <laughs> to so much more mainstream art about gay men it always feels this need 
to apologize and say that their main character isn't like those other gays. Their main We're just character. Like y'all. Mm-hmm. Yes, we want monogamy. We want love. We don't have a whole bunch of sex. And there's this other different gay guy who's having too much sex. And we're scandalized by it. And we think it's fun. But the story feels the need to punish him. And that this is a movie where people have sex for fun, where people do poppers to help with sex. Mm-hmm. Um, we still live in a world. I just read the Catholic review review oh, of, of this movie. Oh, and Why would it, you punish yourself like that, sir? I, because it is fascinating and beautiful that the Catholic Review is reviewing this movie. You know, it's yeah. it's there's something nice about the fact that the Catholic Review feels the need to say it is funny. Um, but there are so many people who just don't think that representations of queer lives as being normal and functional should exist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's just this is like the conversation that exists outside of the movie. And I want to get into that because like the movie itself functions as a rom-com. It functions as a queer movie. But as you know, with every large piece of gay content this year, there's been a discourse around it and a discourse around that discourse. And even Billy mm-hmm. Eichner has said that he's felt this responsibility for the movie to do well. He says that he wants it to do well so other queer stories get greenlit. And there's just this level of expectation How much of that, when you were producing this film, when you were acting in it, did you allow to get in your head? How much of it informed what you were doing? Because I know it was there. Are are you familiar with the concept of Shonda Fertigoyen, Sam? (laughs) Tell me all about that. (laughs) It's a Yiddish phrase, and it basically means you're embarrassing us in front of the Gentiles. And, you know, and I think with this movie, there was... A, a sense of when you do have this nice big platform, you want to be representing your group responsibly. And there's also just this commercial element that is really hard because it is just this question of can we be trusted with the resources that make mainstream exactly. entertainment possible? And so I think that trying to run that line of both being respectful and thoughtful about how we were representing this community while at the same Mm -hmm. time trying to make something that is a mainstream entertainment that lots of people can enjoy was what we were trying to do. And and that is going to inherently involve compromises. What was the biggest compromise you saw in making this film? Oh, from um, your point of view, a lot of people have questioned, why is it to white cis gay guys who are pretty conventionally attractive on um, you know, in Luke's case, very conventionally attractive. Very. In, in Billy's <laughs> case, okay. Um, but you know, I I think there is a sense of trying to give people something that they will understand. You know, mm. trying to give people a version of queerness that, yeah. um, like, is still involving uh, a, a a pretty. Cl- mm, I don't know how to say this. You can say it. Um, a vision of queerness that they maybe have seen before. And a vision of queerness that they can put themselves on top of, put themselves in. Right. Do you get angry sometimes at the pressure queer content has right now? You know, to be understandable enough for straight audiences, but also have enough inside jokes for queer audiences. Uh, The pressure for a film like this to do well, so other queer films do well. I think about, like, the heyday of rom-coms in the 90s. Those films didn't have to worry about as much. Yeah. 
they just got to be straight and white and pretty and Julia Roberts got to be Julia Roberts okay. and like they were unconcerned and unbothered. This is a movie by design that has to worry about a lot of things because of the discourses and the pressure. Does that make you angry? Um, y- yes. And there's no way around that. Um, okay. In, in a room of one's own, Virginia Woolf talks about how she's basically comparing Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte. And she's like, Charlotte Bronte is a greater genius, but her work is undercut by the flashes of rage that come out at a fundamentally misogynistic world. Something along those lines, I haven't read it since college. And while watching, while watching Rose, <laughs> I was, I was very aware that there are flashes of rage that come out and that rage is honest. And there is something, you know, terrible and beautiful about the fact that we are having to navigate oppression at the same time as navigating, just finding someone you want to spend your time with. And one of the coolest things about this movie was that a lot of people have had questions about the fact that it's produced by Judd Apatow and it was directed and co-written by Nick Stoller, both of whom are straight guys. And I thought it was a really beautiful and wonderful process because it was straight white cis guys who were actually listening, which is something you don't always get. Yeah. How different would this film have been if all the folks at the top of it were queer? I mean... It would have been wonderful. And also, like, you know, there have been so many movies that were made outside of the studio system by largely or entirely queer filmmakers that are magnificent. The good thing about having straight people involved at the top the first time a studio is making a film like this is having people to reassure the queer people there that it was all going to be okay. (laughs) You know, Mm. like there is that fear when you are doing something for the first time that you're doing it wrong. There is the fear that comes when you have been systemically excluded that you don't have Mm -hmm. what it takes. And having- Mm -hmm. uh, Having Judd Apatow be like, no, you're good. Right. That means something. Having Judd Judd Apatow and Nick Stoller say, no, you're good. No, this film is funny, um, was really helpful. And also having them listen when they wanted to go in one direction and Billy was resolute that that was not the right answer was really important. And the thing that's most important to me about that is it makes a funnier movie Mm. because creating that space for people to be open and feel trusted and supported Mm -hmm. allows for the possibility of people adding their own voices and their own jokes and enriching the whole product. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there has already been so much discourse around the film, what it means, what it represents. There's been dialogue around things that Billy has said in interviews, if it's respectful to the rest of the queer canon. There's going to be even more critique once this movie is in theaters, whether it does amazingly or not. Like, it's just going to be discourse. Mm -hmm. What of that discourse or that criticism or that critique or that finger wagging or nitpicking any kind of queer piece of content right now gets will you find most annoying and most disingenuous or have you so far? I mean, the thing is, is like there is anxiety around our representation. Like we have lived in the shadows for millennia 
And putting ourselves in the spotlight is hard. We are ready to be criticized and we're going to criticize ourselves. Like there's no way around that. And it can only be fixed by there being more queer stories. To me, the thing that is most annoying is the idea that you like directly need to pit this up against some other queer movie I mean, and some uh, other movie right now, Fire Island. There's already been right. like the comparison, the dialogue, yes. the discourse. Yes, the, the notion that there can only be one gay movie that is the true and correct gay movie, and that somehow it is a referendum on your identity as a queer person, which one you have chosen, is ridiculous. Like we got two big budget gay romantic comedies this year. It's exciting, you know, and I think that bros and and universal have been really intent on talking about what a historic thing they're doing. And in doing that, you know, they aren't leaving space for acknowledging the fact that, you know, we, we come as part of a tradition. And then there are other ways where people are like, well, why are they saying this is the first studio gay rom-com? There's Billy Holly, Billy's Hollywood screen kiss, there's trick. And that's not acknowledging the fact that those filmmakers didn't have the kind of support and didn't have the kind of marketing or release that bros is, is going to enjoy. The thing is, it's like, it's all very annoying, but also it's a hundred percent unavoidable. We're showing up to the party in a bigger way this year than we have been able to in past. And there's going to be some anxiety around that. And there's no way around it. You, you cannot change the problems of millennia of marginalization without things being a little bit weird around it, you know? And it's just, it's going to be part of the game. But like all of this discourse isn't (laughs) going to change the fact that five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, young queer people are going to be able to go to their streaming service and watch a beautiful, lush, hilarious movie about going on a queer vacation for a week with the people you love most and Mm -hmm. also a splashy, Mm -hmm. fun, (laughs) romantic comedy in the fashion of like a Nora Ephron movie about two guys who don't really understand relationships trying to have a relationship. Like a year from now, this discourse won't matter. What will matter is the art that was made. Yeah. You know, I keep thinking as this big studio rom-com comes out in the year of our lord 2022 (laughs) i wonder about the state of the rom-com you know when i think of like the heyday of the genre i think of like julia roberts and the 90s and half the movies she made in that decade and they just dominated but you look at like what movies really 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 track in theaters these days it's big action films it's big superhero films and the rom-com in a certain sense thrives in some streaming spaces, but there are fewer of them in theaters and they make less money in theaters today than they did 20 years ago. And so even while I'm enjoying this rom-com and enjoying the movie Bros, I am wondering writ large, like what is the future of the genre itself? And I want to ask that to you because I know that you've thought about that a lot. Like what is the future of rom-coms? Okay. Here's the thing, Sam. Probably an alien from another planet is not going to get a glove with infinite power and then try to destroy your universe in your life. But you are (laughs) going to go on dates, you know? Yeah. Like, this is stuff that's real. And and that's why the romantic comedy is not going to go away. Because 
it is the most relatable and universal and human of stories. And, you know, we've had a lot of romances in the last, you know, 10 years or so that were successful, but they were usually these sort of mopey, sad, YA versions of teen romance. And, you know, we haven't had a lot of space for grown-ups at the movies. We haven't had a lot of space for uh, emotions that were sophisticated rather than intense. And pessimism feels sophisticated. You know, and also in light of what the world has been for the last five or 10 years, pessimism definitely seems reasonable. But cynical movies, you walk out and you feel like you were part of something um, that was smart. And mm. I think that that's false. I think it takes a whole lot more to be optimistic. Yeah. Uh, I'm so happy for this conversation and for your work in the film, bros. This seems like a really good season for you, and I'm just excited for you. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much. I always enjoy a conversation with Sam Sanders, whether it's being recorded or not. Um, it's always a good time, and I, I hope to see you in real life soon. Yeah, I am in L.A. I'll find you. We'll hang out. Cool. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Culture Geist. Culture Geist. You're listening to Culture Geist. Culture Geist. I don't know, y'all. And now for a segment we're calling Culture Geist. About all the things we can't stop thinking about. The culture that's haunting you, haunting me, haunting all of us, for better or worse. Hey, this is Chris Stanton. I'm a copy editor at New York Magazine. One thing that's been bothering me for the last couple of months is that there's a missing comma in the title of the movie, Don't Worry, Darling. Darling all of you wives. With you all the time. Now, ignoring the rest of the controversy surrounding that movie, the missing comma bothers me because it appears to have just been a complete oversight. Like among the presumably hundreds of people who are involved in making and marketing this movie, not a single person raised their hand and said, hey, by the way, there's a missing comma in the title. I'm curious to hear where she's going with this. You know, I think there's a whole bunch of valid reasons why a movie could have a grammatically incorrect title, even if it's just aesthetic. But with this one, it just struck me as being thoughtless. Um, and having now seen the movie, 
Unfortunately, that feels in keeping with some other aspects of it. And I don't want to be here anymore. Hi, I'm Steve Peterson. Yesterday on Twitter, I saw a short video of a clip from the February 23rd, 1975 episode of The Share Show. You Um, during which Cher and her musical guests, the Osmonds, performed a medley of Stevie Wonder songs. You are the apple of so you have Cher, the Osmonds, and Stevie Wonder songs. Now throw on top 1970s hair, and the Osmonds were wearing these purple suits with these very bold white and pink stripes with these metal bedazzlements. All right, now everybody just clap along. We're going to sing a little song of superstition. And wow. And so apparently what triggered that um, going on to Twitter was Cher shared it on her YouTube channel. And that's how it ended up on Twitter and ended up in my mind. So it will haunt me until I die. And what led me to record this and send this in so it will haunt you until you die. You're welcome. Hi, this is Meg. I wrote The Love is Blind after the Alter Season 2 recap, and I am still deeply haunted by a number of things that took place and were said in, in those episodes. However, I think... What's the darkest to me is Nick's dietary preferences, okay? Danielle says that he is a picky eater because of Netflix documentaries. So he's gluten-free, pork-free, chicken-free, now shrimp-free. So allegedly all those things have issues and we're covered in these um, Netflix documentaries. But it's like, then why aren't you beef-free? I'm, I eat everything. I'm not anti-whatever, but like... What do you mean that you're anti-chicken, shrimp, gluten, pork, but not anti-beef? I do feel like beef famously is like one of the most controversial meats. Bad for the planet, bad for your heart health. And so this is just really fucking weird to me. Thanks again to Meg and Steve and Chris. Listeners, do you have a culture geist, a thing in the culture that's been haunting you for days or weeks or even years? Haunting you in a good way or a bad way doesn't matter. Share yours with us. The more specific you are, the better. Send us a short voice memo at intuit at vulture.com. All right, Intuit is hosted by me, Sam Sanders. The show is produced by Janae West, Jelani Carter, and Travis Larchuk. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman, and we had editing help this week from the amazing Jolie Myers. Our engineer is Daniel Turek. Our music is composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our podcast operations manager is Gabby Grossman. And Hannah Rosen is the editorial director of audio at New York Magazine. All right, dear listeners, we are back next Thursday with a new episode. Until then, do whatever you like, except listening to the CIA podcast. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do not. Okay, bye. Bye.